Welcome back to the Cycling Tips Podcast, everybody. I am Kaylee Fretz, and we have a very special episode for you today. Some of you might recall our Rafa Roadmap episodes from earlier in the year that Ollie Duggan and I put together. Well, we thought we would do one more. We would do a sort of season wrap-up. Uh, and to do that, we thought a roundtable would be fun. So we pulled in a couple athletes, uh, a team principal, and a well, a founder of a large clothing company, uh, to chat about what just happened in the 2020 season. Because in a lot of ways, it was sort of a grand experiment, a grand and accidental experiment caused by coronavirus, caused by uh, the fact that we couldn't have a normal calendar. And a lot of what the Rafa Roadmap calls for is a pretty dramatic shift in the way that the cycling season plays out. And so we just had a dramatic shift in the way that the cycling season plays out. A bit of an experiment. So we wanted to talk about what we learned from that experiment. Abby, Mickey, how are you? Hello. Good. How are you? I'm excellent. Can you tell me who we're going to ring up in a couple minutes here? Yeah. So we have a very, very exciting cast of characters to chat with today. Tiffany Cromwell, rider for Canyon SRAM Racing. Mitch Docker of EF Education First Pro Cycling. Dave Brailsford, who is kind of like the, you know, big man in charge of the Ineos Grenadiers. And Simon Mottram, who founded Rafa, but kind of came onto the podcast as a fan of cycling from from the perspective of the people watching at home. Kind of like us, actually. Yeah, I should say that I, I just introduced this as people were about to call, but we already called them. So we already know what they said. We're recording this intro afterward. Uh, it's, it's really interesting. I, I want everyone, all of our listeners out there, uh, Keep an ear out for a couple specific things. One, keep an ear out for Dave Brailsford kind of changing his tune uh, in terms of what's important to him in a cycling team. Uh, I think this is actually a big deal. This is a, uh, Simon sent me a message right after we finished recording and said, I think that was a new Dave Brailsford. And I kind of agree. It, it, was, it was things we haven't heard from Dave before. Uh, also keep an ear out for some discussions of, well, kind of what to do with the UCI, because I think we, we, we get into that in, in some detail near the, near the end of the episode, and it's some pretty interesting stuff coming from folks who are deep, deep inside the sport. Uh, Mitch and Tiff have a lot to say about sort of the, 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 the reality check, essentially, uh, on a lot of these discussions from the racers' perspective, because they have to deal with this actual calendar, right? You know, it's easy for us sitting on our couch watching on TV to talk about, oh, we want this, we want that, we want this. They actually have to race it, right? And so it's a really interesting perspective for both of them coming in uh, and two very different calendars because the men's calendar and the women's calendar were exceptionally different in 2020. Uh, but anyway, without further ado, let's drop into our round table with four of the most interesting people in professional cycling. Uh, so Simon, you're you're kind of here as a fan, uh, very much actually. I think like like Abby and myself, you know, we we view the sport a bit from the outside. We're not fully let into things. Uh, so 
when we were talking earlier this spring and we were talking about the RAFA roadmap and you have, you said numerous times that you know, your goal is to make road cycling the most popular sport in the world. So my sort of big overarching question to kick things off is do you think this very strange season was a setback on that goal or a step forward in that goal? Did we, did we learn things from this year that can make pro cycling better or was this just, just so weird that, you know, we, we stepped back basically. Well, it was definitely weird, Kaylee. Um, definitely weird. I, I think we learned a huge amount and I think we probably did take a step forward, which is remarkable really, because I think there aren't many parts of the world where you think the last few months of chaos has been a step forward. But I think there's glimmers of hope in what we've seen the last few months. I mean, f- first of all, as a fan, I'm just so happy it happened. And I think huge credit goes to the teams and the organisers even the UCI probably, which is not something I often say, but but for actually getting racing happening, um, it's so easy to sit here and just consume it and think, oh yeah, great, how hard can it be to put on a one-week stage race or a, or a classic? So doing that was amazing, and to have all that racing, for someone like me, I was just a pig in shit, basically. Um, but, but I think it has been very interesting, very exciting, more exciting than a season I can remember ever. And I think there's lots of lessons in that and a huge amount to take away about the calendar and how racing is done and storytelling and all sorts of things. So yeah, I think it's positive. I want to kind of start with the calendar, right? That was, that was one of our primary focuses when we were chatting in the spring. Uh, Obviously, We've never seen a calendar or anything like this. Uh, so maybe I'll kind of pivot over to, to you, Dave, and, and, and ask how, how you kind of approach this coming in. Can you take us inside those conversations you and the team were having in you know, May, June, July, sort of as things were about to kick off, as you were attempting to set yourselves up for this race season that was going to be nothing like anything you had encountered? What, what were those conversations like? What were the kind of sticking points you were running into? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know for, for for the rest of you. I'm sure you may have felt the same, but it felt so. We were actually abroad, um, and we were in Andorra actually when sort of the lockdown started to appear on the horizon. And I just managed to get back into the UK just as the Cheltenham Festival was it? Cheltenham Festival, it was, wasn't it? You know, which when you look at that, you think this is an absolute disaster waiting to happen. You know, and so I think all of us kind of try to transition into lockdown first and get our heads around it. And then once we recognised the length of time that it was likely going to take, uh, that we were going to be, you know, without any racing at all, um, I think it was a question of trying to think about how do we, did we manage that period? And a kind of duty, from a team for you, know, like a duty of care, really, because all of a sudden there's a lot of athletes, uh, teams like, but really the athletes who'd had their big dreams, big goals, big targets, they've been working hard, and all of, the, all of a sudden, they disappeared, or got, or got paused and pushed back. Or were they ever going to happen? You know, at all this year, nobody knew. And I think, I think that that did different things to different people. And I also think at the same time, it kind of, it, I think it was a very healthy thing for sport in general for us just to recognise uh, where we stand in the in the pecking order of the world, really. Because I think when you've got a pandemic and you've got the, we had the NHS in in, in Britain. And um, you started to see other areas of, uh, of society that you very much take for granted, I think, um, all sudden stepping up and becoming, you know, everybody recognising the role that they played and how important they were. I think it kind of, it kind of was a bit of a, it, was a it, was, it wasn't a bad reminder for everybody as like where we fit into all of that. And so as, as you know, as we started to go towards the, 
potentially going back into racing. The question for us really was, was there going to be any racing? And certainly whilst the period, we had the period of having no racing, we felt very, certainly I felt very responsible that we had. We were being funded. Um, we, we weren't furloughed. We were maintained on, on full pay. And you felt, right, well, there must be a way of creating value back to the ownership without actually being able to race. So we've got all these people, we've got loud voices, you know, we've got a lot of stuff we could do with the sport. What can we do? You know, so we started to think about how do we create value during the period of a lockdown? And of course, inevitably, it turned to maybe helping out in other areas of, 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 um, of, of their, the, our owner's business. And um, equally, the, the whole indoor, you know, Zwift, all that kind of area where it's cycling at least people could join in and people could see still see a bit of racing so i think that that took on a whole new dimension for us really and and really did i guess open our eyes up to what um, e-racing and all that kind of part of our sport really has to offer which was a great deal then we had to try and figure out well how hard should we train and um, and I think we felt a degree of responsibility. So our guys, they trained really hard uh, during lockdown, probably too hard with hindsight. Uh, you know what? Well, not too hard to be fair, but they, we could have we could have timed that better. You know. Um, and then as the racing calendar started to uh, appear on the horizon, the question was: Is there going to be any actually any racing at all? Does anybody really think that there's going to be a grand tour? We're going to be able to do three weeks together? It was like you know what? We're not sure this is going to happen. So maybe we should be training hard enough to think about next season. And um, there was a little bit of that, you know, in, in, in our thinking. And of course, when the, when, when the sort of calendar came out again, we all went into the smaller kind of races that potentially we wouldn't tour de you know, those kind of races we wouldn't normally visit, to be fair. Um, and then you had the reordering of the, of the three Grand Tours, which I think was really significant. Right, really, really significant and a great opportunity for us to trial and, and test things that we might think about in terms of how could we make the sport better. But it was being forced upon us. So we had no option. We had to change. You know? So the Tour de France first, Giro halfway through the Welter, was pretty significant. And then you got all the classics mixed up within that and it was all compact and it just felt like 100 mile an hour. And I thought it was really exciting. I think there wasn't any time to have a, a pause after one Grand Tour and think about the next one and have a bit of time to reflect and off we go again. It was like, start one, boom, next to the next one. And I think we got our state in, in, you know, I think everybody revved up to, to, to a real sort of, not a frenzy, but a very, very energised start to the season. And, and it just carried on from there. And, I, and um, I think the energy and the compactness of the season and everything else had... Um, with some unintended consequences, maybe, but I can't see any of them that were too negative. I think it was all positive. It was a brilliant experience, if I'm honest. I think that's really interesting, Dave, because one of the things that I noticed was it was utterly chaotic, wasn't it? I mean, it was utter chaos. Mm. What race was I watching on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Sunday? There were three or four races on the same day many times. But, but through all that chaos, what it showed me is you know we, we sat around talking about the calendar for many times I, i'm sure you and i have talked about it i've spoken to kaylee about it and there are so mm -hmm. many people in the sport who just think things can't change 
It's like, you know, Flanders has to be in mm. the spring and Lombardy has to be a race of the falling leaves and Grand Tours are always three weeks and all these things were just completely thrown out the window. And I think we learned that you can change these things and Milan San Remo can be run in the summer and you can create a narrative that's more appropriate and that's easier to understand, even though this year was impossible to understand. I think it shows that you can. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that totally. And I think sometimes the resistance to change is just inertia, isn't it? You know, And now what we should be taking out of this season is that anything's possible. If ever we're going to change, now, now it's opened up the window of, um, not opportunity, but just the, the fact that people can see, well, you know, with 2020, anything could happen, couldn't it? You know, so why can't we? And it was fun in a way. You know, I'm not saying 2020 is fun in terms of pandemic, right? don't get me wrong, but, but actually I felt... I felt we enjoyed our, you know, I've been at this a long time and, you know, I'm renowned as being a miserable old side, a bit intense. And all those are the kind of things that people think about me. But I'm not in reality. You know, I love, I love bike racing, you know, and I, I enjoyed the bike racing more this year than I can remember for a long, long time. And, and hopefully that can, that can keep on going, you know. I, I totally agree with both you, Simon and Dave there. Um, as, as a viewer of the racing, I loved it. But I've got to take the side of a cyclist for a minute. And the only downside I see of this compact program is, I agree with also what you said, Dave, is that if I had time again, I would have loved to have done my lockdown training a lot differently. I think I went too hard in the ergos. And I, I also do another good point too. So you made a couple of good points there. Is the e, I heard this idea that eSports was going to be the Olympics. And this was a little while ago. And I'm like, are you kidding me? But after lockdown, I was like, Oh, I can actually imagine this now. So that was a really positive thing out of it. The negative thing was I was training a little bit like you said, maybe I need to train as hard as I normally race in a year because we're not going to do any racing and I need to feel fatigued at the end of the year. If I can talk in hindsight now of actually doing, which I didn't think would happen a whole season in those months, I think the negative thing was it was from it is that it was too much in too compressed time that a lot of great results got lost. And I use the example as Ruben Guerrero from our EF team won a stage in the Giro, which normally would have been up on a pedestal. But on the same day, Mads Pedersen won Gen Wavelgum. And it's like fantastic results on their own, but unfortunately we had so much racing. It's just like, who sort of gives a shit? You know what I mean? It's like, this stuff on their own normally is like contract writing stuff. And even like we look at Will Barter in, in the Vuelta, finished second in that time trial, and he's still struggling to get a contract. And that's what I sort of hated about this season. As much as I loved everything you were talking about, that it was exciting. And every time you turned the TV on, there was just a massive race on. It was awesome. Super Sunday, Super Saturday, whatever. But in all, in all that, as a rider, you like, you work so hard to get this stuff and finally get a stage win at a Grand Tour. And it's like, no one really cares. It's just like, God, I, I really felt for those guys, unfortunately. And like, like I said, with guys who, like even um, Alex Dowsett, you know, like these sort of great results in their own years would have just been standalone results. He would have been had three or four offers from teams. And that's the rightest perspective that I'm sort of getting out of it. Even though I understand the viewer perspective and even outside of that, um, it's it's been a sort of yeah. Mitch, imagine being a fan though. You know, you can't even pronounce Gent Vevelhem if you're a fan. You don't know what it is. <laughs> then there's this guy winning winning a stage and he's wearing a blue jersey, but the leader of the mountains always wears a polka dot jersey. So why is he wearing a blue jersey? Mm. And and one of those ducks. <laughs> it's 
It was probably incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible to us. Imagine what it's like to a new fan. I mean, they must think this is bonkers, this sport. Totally. Yeah. And I, like I said to you before, because I didn't race a lot before the World Day, and I was on board of exactly what you guys were thinking. I loved it. Came home, trained, but I could just watch a great race every day. But until I got into the World Day, I was like, yeah, I started putting all the pieces into place and going, does anyone really care what I'm doing right now? I'm doing a grand tour, pretty hard. Normally we get some viewing, but like I get the feeling that no one even really cares, you know? So that was sort of the downside I felt of this massive compact program. As exciting as it was, um, I felt like some of the, the effort and we put in wasn't getting appreciated. You know, that's just old cyclists here crying. Mitch, the viewing were figures they? were up. Yeah, yeah, the Vuelta was up 95%, Giro's up 82%, yeah, the Tour right, was okay. up 48%. I mean, they, they were all up. So we, we were all watching you, don't worry. Good. That's the main <laughs> point. <laughs> but I think firstly, people wanted sport to watch, so that was the biggest thing. But from like the women's perspective, you know, or even for riders in general, we're all racing as if it was the last race because we're always assuming, okay, first we thought after the first three weeks, there's not going to be any more racing because there was already positive cases. And then it was like, okay, they just want the Tour de France to happen and then it'll be cancelled, then Worlds. But then we got to the end of the season. So I think for everybody, that was a surprise. But on the women's side, the level was just constantly higher. Like nobody used races for training. They were just racing full gas because, again, we never knew when was the last race. I think that was a positive. But if you came into the race, like let's say we didn't have overlapping programs, so we more or less just had the one compact calendar so let like I missed the first block of races and didn't start until La Course or no Amelia. And with that, so if you're already a month behind the rest without racing your legs, it was also trying to play catch up was really tricky. So again, it's like pros and cons. With the men's side, I think you had multiple programs, so you, people had a lot of racing, but on the women's side, if you have a team of fifteen, you didn't necessarily have a lot of racing. But it was always exciting, like you say, because nobody knew when was the last race. Or when was the next race? And everybody assumed it was the last race. I, I had sort of assumed that 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 riders would have motivation problems over the summer, or in, in that sort of May, June, July kind of space before things really kicked off again. It doesn't sound like that was the case, though. It sounded like almost—I mean, Mitch, you're, you're talking about basically the opposite, right? Uh, you think that that people came in what overcooked a little bit into the beginning of the season? I, I definitely took the approach of TIFF. I said, you know what, I, I had Strada Bianchi Milan San Remo and I went, well, I've got two races guaranteed and I'm pretty sure it's not going to get locked down before those two races. But if things go bad, I need to make sure that I am firing day one. I can't allow my normal approach to a season is get in, get my feeling for races and then eventually, you know, a month or two down the track, I'm in form. I was like, I need to hit the ground running because... Who knows? We might get two or three races and I want to make sure that I'm flying in those first few races. Ultimately, I wasn't, but that's another story. But, you know, um, that's what was my approach. And by the time I was doing the last race of the year, the Vuelta, that approach was, didn't really work quite as good because I had to try and hang on to that form for those three months, um, which is sort of what Dave was alluding to there with the, with the, the tough training. It was, it was difficult to plan. If Obviously, if we're sitting here now and we knew that whole program was going to run, you'd do things differently. But I went, you know what? I don't know what's going to happen. Bugger it. I'm just going to go in ready to, ready to go. I was just going to say the other big challenge was having the World Championships in the middle of the season. That, you know, is normally the highlight of the year, at least, you know, on the women's side because the men, they also have their grand tours. But, you know, having that and then knowing, okay, we still have all the classics, that was something different to have to kind of be like, okay, we're peaking, but then maybe our next peak is for the classics, but they're straight after. That was a new challenge for sure, I think. 
So, so I'm, I'm going to kind of take that, that form question and, and ping it back over to Dave because uh, you're, you didn't win the Tour de France this year, but you kind of won more different things than you ever have before. Uh, I'm not sure ever. But you had a, you had a good season, r- nonetheless, right? You had you came away with tons of stage wins. You came away with a Giro. Uh, how how were you working behind the scenes to then sort of reorient riders toward these other goals that suddenly popped up that would not normally be at the top of your list, but were suddenly sort of you know reality dictated that they had to be at the top of your list? Well, I, I think the um, it seemed to me anyway that everything that we grown to know and sort of everything that we assumed in terms of a normal cycling season and how you'd approach it and what you do and how you do this and how you prepare etc cetera, etc cetera. I think we got a pretty well tried and tested model to be fair and it was all out the window <laughs> it literally was out the window and so it was okay well let's you know so you've got to be adaptable and, um, and and then I think in lockdown in particular I think you really saw a lot of people's real personality come to the fore so if you're, you know, the guys, and um, I'm sure like y- yourselves, who, who, who's, who, are, who are hard trainers, you know, they're, norm- they're intrinsically driven to train. Boy, did they train on a turf. They were doing crazy. Some of the training we were seeing in, on, 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 at home, but they were big numbers. They were tough, you know, and, and there's no real knowledge yet of what impact does that have in terms of recovery or load? Is it the same as being on the road? Is it not being the same on the road? And of course, other people are a bit like, well, I've lost my goal. I'm a, I feel a bit lost now. I, I need a goal. I need to train for a very specific goal. They were a little bit more kind of laissez-faire, if you like, and a little bit more, hmm, sort of going with the flow a little bit more. And it was interesting to watch people's kind of true personality and dealing with uncertainty come to the fore. And I think we went into the, um, into the coming out of lockdown, uh, I think a lot of the guys trained very hard. And then I think then we came into the season and there's a little bit of adjustment needed there in terms of coping with the fatigue and, and, and maybe a little bit. It was very, very hot when we started racing, wasn't it? If you remember that first, that first couple of months of racing, was extremely hot. And I think certain people were more adapted to the heat and, and did a good job of, of managing the heat. And other riders did, um, did less, less well in the heat. And I think that was quite a big factor. And then for us, I think, you know, when, um, I guess for anybody really, when we, we went in with, with Egan as the leader and, and he's young, and he, I was quite concerned about him as a, him as a, his age as a person rather than necessarily his performance. And I think you've got to bear in mind that you know we've, over the years we've developed a, a system, a structure where you know these guys like your your, your Froomies and your G's, they over many many years they they've developed the mental kind of um, aptitude, if you like, to be able to take on the full stress of going into a into the Tour de France, expecting to try and win it with a whole team dedicated to you and the backup team dedicated to you and everything else is all, all the pressure, all the spotlights on you. And that, and you've got to be ready for that, you know, and it takes time to develop that readiness so you can be prepared physically, but you're not necessarily ready to deal with all of that. And I think it was a challenge for, uh, for us and Egan going into the, into the tour this year. And of course, the moment that Egan, uh, you know, he didn't, um, it was clear that he wasn't going to win. We had to totally rethink um, where we're at and how we're going to race, and and I think it changed. I think I actually think now it didn't didn't feel it felt quite um, challenging at the time, but it sort of um, it took us from being the people trying to defend all the time for many many nearly ten years or so, you know, defend 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 defend, 
all of a sudden we were the challengers once again. And I, I can't, it was a bizarre feeling, bizarre experience, but it really did feel like a liberation. You know, I got a lot of shit for it. A lot of people said I should have been sacked for it and this, that and the other. But the reality was that it kind of liberated um, the riders and the team and they raced beautifully, to be fair. I mean, they, they went back to what bike racing is all about. So and it's it got to be kind of fun, right? Yeah, really, really yeah. fun. Yeah, and I think the, our, our biggest media moment of the last two years, um, when you think about Egan winning the Tour, um, Geraint coming second and all the other stuff in between and Taylor and the Giro, our biggest media moment was, in fact, Karapatz and Kwiatowski crossing the line together, winning a stage of the Tour, which is quite interesting, isn't it? You know, I think. And then from there, we obviously went into the Giro, very disappointed at start. But then with Geraint crashing out, I think um, Filippo set the tone, if you like, in terms of nice, he's kind of expected to win and do well in the time trial. But his road race, uh, the road stage that he won, nobody'd seen that coming in the climbs, to be fair. And it was like, wow. And they just kind of went, you know what, we won a race. And and it was, it was, um, it was just, it was rejuvenating, I think. And, um, and the way they race, they race beautifully. They race for each other. They didn't really care who won. And, um, you know, they, they, it just it was everything you'd expect racing to be. And, and that kind of, that's, that's stayed with us through the rest of the season. And I think it's changed us as a team, if I'm honest. And that's what we're going to try and keep on doing going forward. And I was just picking up what Dave was saying, because we've all seen it happen with, with Ineos, and it's, and it's fantastic to watch. But I think the whole season has been a season of sort of heroes and all those romantic things like Panache. It felt like, because you didn't know if tomorrow was going to happen, people grabbed the races by the scruff of their necks and went for it. And quite often, they sort of, they made it. And, you know, people like Alaphilippe, it, they seem like it's that kind of racing now. And God, as a fan, that is incredible. And I think, you know, you look at Jumbo Visma, and I think they're already sort of slightly on the back foot. And they've sort of, they've, they've, they've adopted your model, Dave. It's all theirs. It's all theirs. <laughs> We're racing. <laughs> So I guess kind of the, the follow-up question to that, the obvious follow-up question to that is then how do you recreate that, right? How do you recreate that kind of tension every single stage without a pandemic hanging over the heads of all the riders and all the teams? Is it, uh, is it a function of then taking some of what we learned in the calendar this year? but then spreading it back out so that everyone can focus on individual days. I mean, you know, we've, we've talked numerous times, Simon and Simon in particular, about things like F1 and how they spread everything out. And so every single day is super important, right? And I feel like that was one of the things. It's this sort of push and pull that we felt in the season this year, which was you pack everything into a really small space, which, as Mitch alluded to, makes some races feel like they don't matter as much. But at the same time, you've got this uh this need to perform every single day you go out caused by something else so how do you recreate that in a in a year without coronavirus that's my big question i i think one answer might be from women's cycling because actually i think women's racing this year was horribly overlooked and was sort of drowned out by the noise and chaos of the men's peloton but actually there were four weeks in the middle of the season for women where every weekend there was a classic one-day race with the same field kicking shit out of each other and racing each other. And you had a narrative, even in only four weeks, a narrative developed. And you know, for Brits, it was Lizzie Armistead. And, um, and for others, it was, it was other riders. 
but to me, even though it was all chaos around, that showed the answer. Part of the answer is you've got to have a structure with a narrative and a cadence where you know that each week the same actors are going to come and they're going to, they're going to compete. And then you can start to build a story. So based on what we saw this year, what is the ideal what 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 does the ideal calendar look like? I mean, we've talked about the Rafa roadmap before. We've we've you know, you let you laid out this sort of option where you have kind of a chunk of the season for the classics and then a chunk of the season for the grand tours. Is that still something that we think would work? Do, do things need to get spread back out or is it just more fun when we <laughs> slam an entire season into 8 weeks or or, or 12 weeks? No. I'll get divorced if we have another season like this because I spent far too much time watching TV. Um, but I, I think the roadmap showed a good way of doing it. I think there's, there's a lot of talk now, which is brilliant, about how do you reassemble it. And unfortunately, lots of people are just trying to cram all the same old races into the same chunk of time and just in a different order. And I think we should be a bit more creative than that. But um, yeah, I think a, a classic series and a grand tour series makes sense. I think three three week grand tours doesn't make sense. I think also having the whole sport based in europe long term is not a good thing even though i love it and you know all the famous races are there you've got to start looking at asia and the us again and trying to integrate them into a into a calendar but we can do it i mean it's, it's up to us to do it now well not me but <laughs> the powers that be we just got to persuade the powers that be to do it i think well, i've got like a a double sort of a, a double-edged sword sort of opinion again on that is that i do agree with what you're saying is that the season has got too long over the last sort of, at least when I've been in the Peloton, 10 years, maybe even before the last 20 years. And I do love that <clears throat> it's, you know, starting in Down Under. I always have to do Down Under and then, you know, I end up finishing with like Beijing on my way home or whatever it is. So I obviously get the, the full spectrum of the long season. I'm agreeing sort of let's shorten the season, but then on the flip side, I do like the the romantic side of the old traditional side of cycling where you did have, which is completely gone now, an element of smaller races building into the bigger races. And this, this, this not every, you know, dog eats dog sort of feel that we had this year. As a rider, being in the peloton this year, it was a, it was a very ferocious racing, great to watch. But it was, and that's, I know that's the, the reality of where cycling's going. And, um, you know, I'm, an, I'm getting to be a bit of an older bloke now. But we've seen this change of the tides, the younger guys, and that's the reality. I think as much as I don't like that and I want it to drift back to a bit more of a traditional style way, I think that's the way it's got to have to go. And I, I do sort of agree with you if I don't have to race it, but that's the way that the cycling is going. You know, the younger guys are coming in and you've got to just be, you know, hitting the ground running and the season needs to adapt to that as well. One, one or two more years until I'm gone, you know. <laughs> 10 years, Mitch. Yeah, 10. 10 years. But, it, but if it doesn't, but if we don't do that, the trouble, the danger is there are other, there's media value in other aspects of cycling. So, you know, we, we got huge coverage for Everesting happening during lockdown. Things like, you know, Lockie doing his, his crazy adventures, Legion in LA. There, there are people who are outside the world tour who are getting a huge amount of attention and fans. And because, partly because pro racing is just a bit incomprehensible. So, I think we've, we've got to sort it out. Otherwise, people will start looking elsewhere. That's my worry. You know, from a rider's perspective, really, I think people can race hard if they're fresh enough and um, mentally, physically and mentally fresh enough and able to do it. And as soon as that, you kind of keep that intensity and you start to go into that point where you're really hanging on, either psychologically or, or physically, 
I think then then we then we 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 got, there's a fine fine line between getting that right and having the right riders fresh enough to race and 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 um, and pushing it too far and just nailing everybody and then, and I think it would it would give us over time I think that would be counter uh, productive and I think one of the interesting or I guess one of the most interesting things about this year is we've all um, learned and become uh, fans of new faces. You know, it's not the same, it's not the usual suspects. You know, there's a lot of new names at the end of this year that we probably didn't hear of this time last year. And there's something really enjoyable and refreshing about that. And it felt like the pool of people who could maybe win grew. Um, and, and that was more exciting and entertaining. Um, and I think because it maybe that one of the things that um, whilst it was uh, more compact, it was easier to kind of remember what happened last week. So the narrative point, I think there was, it was like a, it was like a, I don't know, it was like a bit of a soap opera where the, you know, you could, you could see the continuity and you, you could go from one week to the next and get a feel for, for, for how things were, were planning out, you know, and I think that was pretty exciting. And I guess there's, um, I guess from, certainly from our point of view, I think the, um, everybody, you know, if you're in, if you're in elite sports, I think you're in to try and win it. You know, I think that goes without saying, whatever you, whatever competition you're in, you're going to try and compete to win. But I think certainly for us, the, the question of um, style, of how do you win, as against just winning alone, um, and is there a style of racing, can that, can that be thought through a little bit more to, to be more conducive for, for the, the teams and riders to think about how do we, what risks are we willing to, to take in terms of the reward we might get? There's something in that, I think. And I think that maybe unintentionally, the, the pandemic in the background changed the risk reward, normal risk reward, kind of what we, what we do, I don't know, normally reflect on. And that was out the window and it, it all became different. And, and that, if we could capture that somehow, and, you know, there's a lot of talk in, in terms of is the Tour de France as a single race is it too important commercially? Is it too important? Does it have, is it out of kilter with the rest of the sport? And I think that we've seen this, this year, I, I would argue that it is. Um, and that the fact that there were so many other races, um, it wasn't necessarily the, the name or the magnitude of the standing of the race that was important. It was how the race was being raced, which was um, important. So I think there's something in, in that kind of bringing the calendar a little bit more into a, a balanced kind of nature so it wasn't all a crescendo into July and then after July it was the end the second half of the season kind of thing we got the Tour de France out of the way quick in many respects and then the season took off and when you look at something like Roglic I, I, I do admire Roglic because I think he's they built up all in all since the start it was, it, it's only goals to win the Tour and the devastating kind of um, the last last kind of well, the last but one day he had there with the, with the time trial I think for many riders, that would have been enough to, to have done them for the rest of the season, quite frankly. And yet he was by racing the following weekend. He did a great ride of the world. He came into Liège and then he's, he'd come along and he's won the Welter. And wow, you know, chapeau, fair play. You know, that's, that's, that takes some doing. And that's, that's, that's a hero thing, you know, quite, quite inspirational to, to see. But the fact that it, it wasn't the tour and then it was stop. You know, I think that had, had that been a traditional season and that happened in July, I'm not sure we'd have seen him for the rest of the season. But the fact that actually it was where it was kind of got it out of the way and then everybody raced the rest of the season. I think there's something really, uh, really, really quite significant in that that maybe we're not picking up um, more broadly. It was good that the 
it was good that the Worlds was the week after the tour, I think, as well, from a fan's point of view, because mm-hmm. you had all the hitters went from the tour to the Worlds, and it was a proper World Championships, you mm-hmm. know, with no mm-hmm. holds barred, wasn't it? Yeah. Different for you, though, Tiffany, maybe. For me, yeah, but the women had the Giro before the Worlds. So but it was, a, it was a balance because I came off a different program. I did Ardesh, then I had a small gap, and then I had Worlds, whereas... For some of the others, they had is like bam, 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 back to back to back. So some worked really well with that. Others, um, you know, they were fried. They got to worlds and they were mentally cooked. And when you're getting back on the balance of the physical and the mental side, it's the mental side more so for the athletes. Like if you can say mentally strong, then you can go the whole season because that was why I think people still perform for a long time this year because you had two months, but people were still mentally fresh. They could still push themselves really, really hard. And the other thing I was going to say was the reason I feel like the racing was more exciting this year was because people less scared, you know. Again, it gets back to the the element of the unknown. People just race their bikes this year. They weren't like, even with the tour, every day we were like, no way is it going to make it more than one week. So people, at least on the women's side, I feel like we just didn't hold back. It's like, let's just go race our bikes today because you don't know. And then that created more people to take more chances and that created more aggressive racing and more exciting racing for the fan. But again, it's like, how do you recreate that when you know you have a full season? How do you stay? But maybe this year has given people more confidence to say, hey, we raced our bike this year. We can do it again next year. So maybe this year has taught us to have more confidence, not be so scared, you know, and not always hold back, you know, as some riders like to do for like their key events or something. Well, you'd like to hear I guess in many respects, what we all really like is for the UCI to do the job and say, hey, everybody, teams, organisers, owners, you know, sponsors, fans, everybody, we've just had the best season ever. In, in, through most different kind of measures, most people would say this is one of the best seasons that ever existed for a sport. A lot of people are talking about, wow, that's a, you know, people you wouldn't expect to go, wow, that's, that was some season, you know. And, and somebody, the, the leadership of the sport should be going, right, we're sitting on, on an an absolute goldmine and a lot of opportunity. So let's think about getting all the different elements and say, guys, instead of competing against each other or here like we normally do, it's let's grow this cake so everybody gets a bigger slice just by being growing a cake, not competing for each other's slice. And Again, this is cycling's biggest problem, as you know, obviously working with F1 too. Yeah. It's yeah. trying to create that model. Like everybody gets a part cycling. It's so scattered and nobody wants to help each other. And that's where we're still stuck is what I believe with our sport. The only thing I would say to that, and I agree with you totally, and I've never, I gave up with it a long time ago, I just got bored with it all in terms of, I just thought I was wasting my time around sitting around a table with people and never going to make a difference. However, however, I would say this has been such a jolt of um, just a bit, such a big experience to, for everybody involved really. And, and in general in society, it does open your mind up a little bit more. And I think people maybe are more, open to saying you know what we would be crazy to let this moment pass by without really trying to make a difference and then i think we could say to the teams and the riders and everything else and, and try and coordinate all right what were the ingredients that made that such a wonderful kind of uh, season and it's in our, everybody's benefit we all we all benefit if we can go and replicate that so what would it take and really do a proper listen to people get them you know really allow them to input into it, organisers and everybody else, and go after it. You know, I think, I think that's what the UCI should be doing. You know, if I was president of the UCI, 
that would be my mission. And I'm not sure what else he's got to do, quite frankly. Um, but it, it should be the that's his job. You know, he likes so. issuing fines for jerseys. That's what he's got to do, Dave. <laughs> yeah, and sitting on their retirement fund. Is this is this your your announcement that you're running, Dave? You're running for UCL no, president. <laughs> I will ever. I will very well. on, on the other hand, I think that you know, having been, you know, God knows how long now in this sport doing this. Over time, I think you do get, you know, as you get older, you get to a point where you can see a bigger picture. I think, and um, I do think there is an opportunity. Uh, if somebody doesn't step in soon, well. Somebody will step in soon. I think there's, there, are, there are a lot of smart people looking at this sport and its current status going, right, this is absolutely right. This is the moment to step in here and try and organise all of this. So I think if the governing body doesn't, and it doesn't take a leadership role, then somebody with leadership will come in and dictate a kind of change, really. Um, so it's one for us all to, to try and get our heads around and, and maybe coordinate and, and think through clearly to see what we could do. But I was wondering if the if the women's racing was actually more exciting than years previously because it is kind of the the model that we're talking about as far as the Rafa roadmap and and the the races having more races that are or having less races that are more spread out so that the same riders can be at every single race and for the women's calendar it's kind of like you have the same top 10 women who are always in the mix at every single race. And it does create more of a narrative than in the men's racing because it's just the men's teams are bigger. They can swap in different riders and everything. So this year was the women's racing from the perspective of actually being part of the Peloton actually more exciting or was it just that, you know, we craved the racing so much when we were all in lockdown and we were all wanting there to be racing that it was perceived as more exciting. Because I feel like the women's racing is always super exciting because of the exact reasons that we're talking about. Yeah, I'd say maybe not necessarily more exciting than previous years. I feel like in the last, let's say, four or five years, it's been an upward trend. You know, the sport's growing, teams getting more professional, we're getting more depth within the women's peloton. But I think one of the biggest things is we've definitely had more TV in prime time. You know, we we're very fortunate in the like classics period. You know, they they gave us a platform to be kind of prime time. And because there was no audiences, more people tuned in. We've seen that in statistics as well. So I think it's just given more fans a chance to actually see what women's cycling is about, which I think before we didn't really have that. Because even when we did have TV time, it wasn't necessarily like in the prime time or it was overshadowed by, let's say, the men's races. And I think... Yeah, it's just as each year grows, we do get more depth. Like, sure, at the start of the season, it was Anamik winning everything, but then things bounced out a bit more and we saw more competitions between different teams. And, yeah, you see the top ten quite regularly battling out against each other, but we also saw a few underdogs or new names, like how I think Simon said, you know, more new names who we hadn't heard about before. Um, so, yeah, I think it's we've just had more of a chance to be in the spotlight is what's made people more aware of, like, the women's side. I also am like a little bit scared about just as like a former writer and someone who's still relatively close to the sport, something that scares me about kind of the panic that was felt this season, like a lot of riders out of are out of contract, a lot of riders couldn't find a team, there's still so many riders that are really good riders that probably won't be racing next year. So yes, this year was really, really exciting in that there the panic made the racing more eventful. But from like a security perspective, from being a rider, I mean, there's got to be some negatives also to 
to how exciting the racing was when it comes to security within the sport as as a rider and like trying to feel safe you know it, it, it was interesting that you say that there uh Abby, because um and, and your comments there uh, tiff because the the, the comment I, I just wrote down a, a note to myself about the commercial model um because on the one hand what we, i think what we're seeing is a very exciting product maybe you know for want of a better word really that, that we've got a sport and an excitement and everything it's like wow that's brilliant you know it needs some tweaking etc but on the other hand we're seeing more riders out of uh, finding it more difficult and more riders out of contract and maybe teams disappearing and for the commercial side to be more challenging through the pandemic and uh, period um, than ever. And, and, and it's a shame really, but I think I guess what the opportunity is, if you see what this, what we've just experienced and then you flip that forward into how do we address this kind of commercial model or the, the business model of the sport, if you like, and it's, clearly clearly not optimized at the minute um and so i think the race program and the product itself has to be tailored but fundamentally our sport is a hundred percent driven and funded by sponsors or by owners you know and and unless we marry that up properly um we're we're never gonna we're never gonna get from where we are now unfortunately regardless of how good the product is you know it becomes insecure it's very very short term it's very uh, unsafe, if you like, and um, and that needs to change. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, our biggest problem is it's like it's a catch-22 because, you know, as UCI have now introduced the Women's World Tour stages for, like, the minimum salaries and blah, blah, blah. So, obviously, next year, teams have to pay a higher minimum than this year. So, of course, with the pandemic, it's hard to find money, again, because although we have a fantastic package, it's still really challenging to get sponsors outside the industry. And it's like, how do we market this to a different audience to perhaps what we need to market the men's side audience? And that's always been the blocker. You know, we can talk, have the conversations, but even a lot of partners, I know, panicked when the pandemic started and, you know, perhaps didn't pay the full amount to teams. So now teams are having to work on a smaller budget to this year, even though the cycling industry has gone bonkers, you know, a lot of people buying bikes, bikes sold out, indoor trainers, Zwift, for example, went crazy. So, you know, there's a lot of companies I think have, got end up really well out of the pandemic but for next year i think the budgets ne haven't necessarily balanced up so then that's why we've seen a lot of riders out of contract because obviously losing pull a car because that was a big flop and then you know teams downsizing because they can't afford what the uci and so then that comes back to the uci because they've made these these new reforms which is good for the sport but then they're not helping develop the package to sell the sport to get more outside interest so again it's like yeah, UCI yeah. is once again one of the major problems. Kind of feels like they're trying to pull the sport up as opposed to supporting it from the bottom, right? They're just yanking it up from the top, which is, I mean, at least they're doing something. They're pushing it in some way, but it'd be better if they were yeah, pushing like they it up from the bottom. Yeah, definitely have listened to the voices to say, okay, we need to do something, but then they haven't thought about the rest of the part to make that happen. You know, if the sport's going to grow, we need to also somehow get more money into the sport. Yeah, Dave. What you said earlier about uh, the Carapaz and, and Cueto um, stage win being your your sort of number one press moment of the entire season that that's super fascinating to me because that indicates something that is changing, perhaps. Uh, and I think it's something that you know EF has definitely sort of grabbed onto. Rafa has definitely grabbed onto. Uh, you know, Lachlan Morton is a, is again a perfect example of. Uh, we got more traffic out of Lachlan's Everesting attempts than we would normally get out of a Paris-Roubaix weekend. 
by a lot. <laughs> and granted, we're just one we're one site, right? And I think if you went NAS Cycling News, they might have a different a uh, different perspective on that. But still, there's there's there seems to be a shift here in the way that teams are able to uh, to essentially generate coverage, right? And, and, and you've obviously been very good at generating coverage by winning the biggest bike races. But internally, are you now looking at ways of generating that coverage that don't involve just yellow jerseys? Yeah, yeah. So I, I won't say I'll generate the coverage, if I'm honest. <laughs> I'm brutally honest and look at myself in the mirror. Simon knows only too well, you know. Throughout when I started and, and particularly through the Olympic kind of programs, you, you're there to win, basically. You want to try and win a gold medal, and it's like a, a performance-first sort of mentality. That, and that, all of my kind of uh, approach has always been about, um, let's go and try and win, you know. And and, um, and I think if you get the win, then, then everything else looks after itself. But it, it's clearly that that's, um, that, that world's changed, and it's changing. And I think, as we all know, you know, the... You don't need a team to promote an athlete now, or an athlete promotes themselves directly to the to the fans, to the public, to whoever else. They've got their own Instagram, their own social media. They don't need the the vehicle of a team. Um, and 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 again, I think when you look at um, what do people, you know, I think I think many moons ago, Simon, we talked about you know respected and loved, didn't we? You know, as being two elements of a of a team and a brand, whatever. And you know, being very much a marmite kind of team for a long time, I guess. You know, people. You got the love in the UK. I mean, there's definitely loved in the UK. I think it's yeah, yeah. less so outside the UK. Yeah, but yeah, respected everywhere. I would say. Yeah, yeah, and and I think the I guess the interesting I don't, look, there's a there's a broader piece and a, and a and a personal piece, and I think that's the personal narrative, if you like, which kind of brings it all, maybe sheds a bit of light on it. Is I left home when I was 19 um, from Wales. To go and try and be a, a, a racing cyclist, I wanted to be like Mitch. I want to be a, a new team. I wanted to be a racer. I loved. I, there's nothing that I could think more than I wanted in the world than to be a bike racer. So I left my family, I left my girlfriend, I left everything behind, and off I went on my own. And I spent three years, got a team, and off I went and, and, and did my racing. And I loved it. And, and something pulled me. Something about racing that pulled me. Let me let, leave everything in my life behind to go and try and pursue that dream. And here I am. I get the chance to run a team, and, and lo and behold, then we start winning. And you realise pretty early on into this, mm, this isn't maybe the most exciting way to win, you know, but you're winning nonetheless. And you get caught then between, well, should we keep on winning or should we change the way we're doing it, you know? And of course, push comes to shove, and it's very difficult not to keep on winning, you know? And, um, and then, like now, looking forward, and, and the experience of this year in particular, I think, it made me think, actually, if I'm going to continue doing this and, and stay involved, then I'd, li I'd like nothing more than to, to have a team and help create a team where the riders ride um, and really race. You know, it's like the word racing. We're not a team sport. You know, we're not, we're not sharing a, a team in a, I don't know, football or rugby or anything else or cricket or anything else. We race, you know. And there's something about the mentality of a racer and how you race. And it takes all different types of racing brains and people and personality but it's racing nonetheless and i think that's the glue and the excitement that pulls everybody into our sport so i'd like to have a team where whenever i finish and you know this will be the last bit of my career and then i'm off and but when i leave and i'd like to transition out with a team that i'd loved when i was 19 like a cool as hell racing team you know? 
And I think that's what we uh, kind of a little bit of a, what we've just been through uh, with this season. And I think what, what it makes you think is actually, you know, people got to be up, it, within a team structure, you've got to have the freedom to take the risk in order to be able to, to, be able to race. So you're not thinking, oh, God, I'm not sure. You give people the freedom to do it. And then rather than pushing the team first, which obviously we did in the Sky days, you know, Sky and then behind you had all the different riders and some of them were well-known and some of them maybe less well-known and came in and out. And, and um, I, th- I think that's changed. I think now it's about the, it is about the individual. And I think promoting the individual characters and personality and racing, of course, is is where it's at. It's what's happening on social media. What's the riders doing themselves? What people like the characters. People like to get to know the the differences between the personalities of the riders. And of course, when they go into a race and they show their flair or their determination or the doggedness, whatever else it may be, I think that's the bit of pe- that's the bit when it's exciting that people like to consume. It's not necessarily just like the team name, you know. And so for us, I think we're really going to try and go back and put the rider and the performance first and the athlete first in terms of their story, their backstory. We recognize there's pros and, you know, the, the ups and racing. If you win, it's brilliant. I've never seen anybody so happy at being second as Richard Carapaz. I've never, never experienced in my life. He's running out with a flag. He's gone back to Ecuador. He's the happiest second place rider I have ever seen in my life. And there's something very, very good about that it's, it's, there's an education in that in itself you know but i do think that the um there is this is the the, the I, I mean i'm only talking from from our perspective i'm certainly with to be fair to ef and, and simon with rafa and you know there are a lot of other teams who who, who are in a slightly different approach have taken a different approach which i respect massively i love the jersey thing much i love the design but i love the concept. i mean the concept is just brilliant i mean it's it brilliant absolutely brilliant and, and something that we should all be taking on. However, I do think this is the moment for us as a sport to collectively go, let's break out and be brave collectively. Let's share the spoils a little bit more because then it's more exciting and then there's more people involved and it's more engaging. So, and, and I think, you know, I spend a lot of time with, with uh, people I know over in, in America who run some of the American teams and the NBA and NFL and everything else. What I like about them is when... So I was with the guys who were running the football team, just started down in Atlanta. They had, they'd done something from a marketing perspective. And the first thing they did, they, did, they phoned up their arch rivals up in Washington or wherever it was and said, hey, we've just done this, um, run this marketing campaign and it was absolutely knockout, brilliant. You should do the same. And said, so, oh, fantastic. And what they were all, they all did the same and they compete on the pitch. But what they all recognize, which is very different from our mentality, is that they all share the best ideas so they can grow their sport. They wanted to grow the MLS. And the better each team was within it, the better the MLS would be, the better it would be for them. And and I think that mentality is missing um, in in our world and and certainly in cycling. And that's where I could see um, a bit more leadership come into it. And then we could say, look, we've got all of the ingredients. We've got all the ingredients to, to, to have a fun. We've just proven it. You know, it's just happened. What we haven't got is the strategic plan to be boring about it or the real kind of, okay, well, these are the steps that you need to take and these are the actual things you need to do to make it happen, make a difference to the commercial uh, model of the sport 
which then allows everybody to be a little bit more free will because they're not so frightened of losing a contract. They're not so frightened of losing a team. They're not so frightened of losing a sponsor. And I think it's all kind of, it could all be wrapped into um, the same thing. And instead of saying, we'll sell you a dream, we're going to change the calendar, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and, so that, and we think this is what would happen. What we've just had is the best experiment in the world. And now we've got the evidence and the facts. I've got the Nielsen reports, the data, same as you guys must have. I've got the evidence of what, what are fans saying about us as a team now compared to what they said this time last year, or even before at all, quite frankly. And, what are the, and it's night and day. It's, it's incredible, the difference. And so we've got the facts and the evidence and the data now to be able to say this isn't just a, a maybe. Here's the, here's the facts and build a strategy around it. And I think that's where, you know, for us as a team anyway, that's what, how we're going to shift the, the athlete first, people first, individual rather than team, and, and have some creative flair about it. I never thought I'd say the day, but I'm going to do away with the school uniform look. I never, ever, ever thought, ever thought I'd say that. But instead of maybe looking the same, the same brand, and, and I thought, like, if, you, if you're not wearing the kit, you're not wearing the shoes, you're not wearing that, you're basically holding your hand up and saying, don't want to be in this team. And I put it all in a bin and people are like, what? <laughs> Where are all the polo shirts going to go, Dave? <laughs> the polo shirts. Yeah. So, so want to go put more, let people look like they want to look like and express themselves how they want to, you know. And, um, and I think so we've just witnessed, we just witnessed something quite important there. With the, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think probably, I don't know about Mitch and Tiff, but I'm definitely here sort of cheering from the sidelines because, Dave, I think it's totally, totally exciting and, quite right and I just wonder whether the UCI can do it because it's only a small group of people in Switzerland with not much funding and perhaps not not the strongest group of people um I don't know what we can do to maybe we need like a cycling liberty like you know whatever because you know they have FIA and then they have liberty we need maybe something like that UCI and then a company that actually owns a sport to change it a big company unless the, unless the, the UCI uh, sees this opportunity in the moment really um, and they're, 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 they've taken a hit funding-wise, you know, they're, they're, their revenues have been really drastically cut. So I think they're looking to survive rather than to, to be strategic or, or build at the minute. But I think it does require some external kind of input and um, the right group of people to, uh, to come and support the sport and, and take it to a new level, really. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's, a, there's a pretty good argument for not having the UCI do that, right? I, I mean, I think that many of the most successful sports, it, it is, it's an outside entity, it's a commercial entity, it's something with a bit of capitalism behind it, with, with, with the incentives that are in the right place. And the UCI, historically, has not really felt like that organization to me. You've got, you've got to bear in mind, and, and this isn't a criticism of, of David Laparton, I actually think he does a very good job of what he's meant to do. Um, but if you think about a world governing body, which is, falls under the auspices of the, an Olympic movement, so it's got a strong contractual relationship with that, and its aim basically is to govern the sport, the rules and the, the governance of the sport in particular, and develop the sport and grassroots and coaching. And then that's all spread out through a, a national governing body structure. And then they've got all their constitutions in their, in their territories. The actual structure and what that entity is meant to do is not compete to try and run uh, a professional sport in the current modern world of, 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 of sport. It just hasn't got the, it, it's not fit for that purpose. It hasn't got the people involved or the necessary capacity or the capability. And it's unfair, really, to expect them to come up with that. You know, FIFA doesn't run the Premier League, um, you know, and, and even at a national level, 
the um, you know the the FA doesn't run the Premier League, and yet we're expecting in in our sport we expect the governing body somehow to be running prof- the professional side of our sports, um, which is a, a real it's, it's it's historical and it's a massive mismatch and very unfair actually that we you know and I'm I'm the same we'll go well the UCI the UCI on geared up to do that you know so they're never going to be able to do it so we, the sooner we recognize we'd be better off with a specialist unit running professional side the professional and elite side of the sport and having a grassroots model that's dovetailed and, and meaningful in terms of how people can participate in the sport and how people can go from participation to competition and if they want to compete in a sport then there's a real real clear very very well flagged and signposted mechanism and, 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 and duty of care within that kind of tier, where you can go up to be a, an elite cyclist if you want to be. Not everybody wants to, to race in our sport. Most people don't race who are part of our sport. And that's a mismatch in itself, you know. You've got to, and and I, I don't know, just that little bit that we talk, the bit that gets the most coverage and media and, uh, and scrutiny, if you like, in, from a UCI perspective, is actually one of the smallest parts of their remit. It's just that it gets a lot of media and a lot of coverage, you know, and, and, it, and, and it's not fit for purpose. It shouldn't be, it should hide it out, you know, subcontract it to a group of people who could do it, you know. And I think that's, that's there's a lot of structural complexity, not complexity, pretty simple stuff, really, but it just needs cleaning up, you know. So who is it? Who, 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 who grabs? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, maybe that's an unanswerable question, uh, but, you know somebody's got to got to grab the reins right we'll be it will be it will be um a, a, you know it'll either be a consortium it'll be an investor um it'll be a, a fund uh, it'll be a very wealthy individual um and and presumably they then pull together a group of like-minded people like us quite frankly um and, and i think we could name them if you wanted to run the sport you could name the people that you want you know I've spent my career in this sport. I know to run this thing, and I pretty much know from the outside who could come in and help. You know, and, and being pretty close now with the Formula One guys and seeing how they operate, the lessons are—it's not complete. They're not even hard lessons to learn. They're the basics. You know, we're not getting the basics right, and um, so I, 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 you need investor. Though. You need money. Um, well, it's not even money. You need an investment because they'll get a return on it for sure. All right. <laughs> All right, Abby, we just got done with our little roundtable here. What's the most interesting thing you heard from from that discussion? I think what's really interesting um, for me coming out of that is actually the difference between a rider's perspective of the season and Simon and Dave's Dave Brailsford's Dave, I'll call him Dave, um, perspective of the season because it was clearly like a very, very different takeaway being a rider in the jam pack season to being a fan because we can kind of sit here and and talk about, oh man, this was so great for the sport, having all of these races together, having all the same players at all these races, like it mean it could it could mean so much for the sport. But it also that's coming from a watching the sport perspective and not as being actually in it and actually training for it and actually competing. Cause I think that, yeah, it was really exciting, but I feel like there's still some negativity that can be taken away from that. And like, I guess not negativity, but more reality. And so I thought that that was really interesting. How about you? Uh, agreed. I, th- I found that, that pretty fascinating. I also, frankly, 
Dave Brailsford's calls for a sort of private entity to take over professional cycling were particularly interesting to me. Uh, in fact, they're interesting enough that we're going to pull some of those quotes out and run them as a story on the website, which uh, Brailsford is always good for a quote. And this particular discussion was no different uh, from that that norm. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I tend to agree. If you look at sports like F1, if you look at, like, 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 like Brailsford said, you know, the FIFA does not run the Premier League, uh, the FA, the, the, the uh, you know, so that the governing body in in England doesn't run the Premier League in in soccer, football. If you're if you're overseas uh, from the US, and then and they're right, right? Like, why do we have the UCI attempting to sort of step into places where they maybe don't have their areas of expertise and where they shouldn't really be operating? And you know, one question that I wished I had I had asked, and it, it unfortunately didn't occur to me at the time, was. Well, what about the ASO? Like, is it is the ASO that that entity, right? I, I did ask who Brailsford thought it should be, and it didn't really get an answer. But you know, in my mind, the ASO is the only entity at the moment with enough power to do so. But it's really not big enough. Uh, it's really not. You know, the 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 amount of money that the ASO makes off the Tour de France is is a similar figure to Ineos's annual budget. It's not that big. So I do think that it, it'll, it'll take a bigger player. And, you know, if I'm reading between the lines, maybe that bigger player is uh, is Mr. Ratcliffe, who actually already funds Ineos. And maybe that's why Brailsford's been thinking about this. Anyway, that's what I found particularly interesting. Uh, we hope that everyone out there, all of our listeners, found that conversation interesting because, well, it's some of the people that may be pushing this sport forward over the next decade or so. Uh, thanks to Rafa, of course, for partnering with us on these episodes, all four of the Rafa Roadmap episodes. Uh, Simon and the rest of the Rafa crew were instrumental in helping us pull all these all these folks together, uh, you know, including getting Dave, Bra- Dave Brailsford on the, on the, the podcast, uh, getting Mitch and Tiff on the podcast. Uh, we do thank Rafa for all your help on this one, and we hope that our audience out there enjoyed it. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with a regular episode of the Cycling Tips Podcast next week. Bye-bye.